Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Uh, Sodfather is very pleased to be joined by Dr. Ben Bickman, doctor. Yeah. And, and now you say doctor, and then I say doctor. Yeah, doc- yeah, that's right. So I didn't get the Spies Like Us reference at first, Peter, but boy, that's a favorite of mine. <laughs> well, um, thank you for taking time from your day to join us. Um, could you please just introduce yourself to the audience as if, you know, we had met at a, a dinner party? Just how would Ben Bickman introduce himself? Yeah, well, yes. So in a dinner party, I'd say I'm Ben Bickman. I'm Cheryl's husband, and that would be the end of it. Um, but but let's let's take it a little further than that this time. So I'm just I'm a research scientist and professor at BYU. So I have a, a, a primary undergraduate class, which allows me to really hone the craft of, of public speaking because I have, to, I have to keep 150, 20-year-olds engaged for two hours at a time. Um, and it also allows me to dive deeper into the um, pathophysiology of insulin resistance. So in a very real way, I credit my teaching assignment with me uh, improving my thinking about insulin resistance because it it was something I could work into that class and I needed to work it in well for it to go over with the students. Um, I'm also a scientist and I study uh, insulin resistance and fat cells and I'm the director of the diabetes lab here at BYU. Um, but that is, you know what, Peter, that is kind of more and more how I describe myself um, to, to individuals, especially in the scientific community more and more, I say that I am a fat cell biologist, or I'm a fat scientist, and <laughs> that it's it's a it, it's really accurate. More and more, I'm just fascinated in the fat cell. Now that might be a little too narrow because we just published a very good paper on brain cells on the hippocampus and Alzheimer's and insulin resistance. So mm. I'll I'll go back with the other one. I'm an insulin resistance scientist, and uh, and that that's that's mostly how I spend my time. Even, even professionally speaking. And of course, I'm a husband and father, and that's how I spend most of my time. Yeah, and, and there's my author. thesis. Yep. <laughs> uh, why we get sick. The hidden epidemic at the root of most chronic disease and how to fight it. Um, so, but how does one get from wherever, where did you grow up? In Alberta, on the, the Alberta. wonderful plains of Alberta. So speak about some good soil. Oh boy, yeah. it's lovely up there. Well, and and I thought I had been on the plains until I had been out into eastern Alberta and Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and then it was like, oh my goodness, this oh, is I know. the plains. Um, yep. So, but how did you get from Alberta to research, university level research? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's uh, the short version of it is I grew up in a home where there was always interest in being healthy. Uh, And my dad, who largely raised us alone due to the early um, passing of my mom, my dad was just very much um, 
just practical about our, our health in our home, where we had our vitamins we would take every morning. He always, even my dad, as busy as he was, um, he cooked a breakfast, a home-cooked breakfast every morning for me and all of my siblings, and there were a lot of us. Um, and just the general appreciation that he he instilled in us um, of our bodies, um, of just how how much of a tool they can be and how we owe it to ourselves to treat them well, that that um, did give me, uh, I think, a very healthy view of of the uh, and a curiosity of the body and how to help it be its best. So that was the beginning of my academic career. I was interested in fitness and exercise. Actually, my master's degree was exercise physiology, mm. and that was born from an interest in um, wanting to know how the body responds to exercise. Why does it get bigger, better, faster, stronger? Um, but it was towards the end of that very master's degree where my interest started to subtly shift from health into disease. And it was around that time that I had I had discovered an, uh, a discovery that had been made a few years prior, which is that the fat cells are actively secreting pro-inflammatory proteins. And this was thought and still is to be one of the key contributors to how excess fat tissue drives insulin resistance. And that was it. That is what totally changed my focus. And insulin resistance was the focus of my dissertation work and then my postdoctoral work. And now 10 years into being an independent professor and scientist, it is still my main mm. focus. Uh, and and um, I remember the first, I'd, I'd say coming out, but that has a different connotation. Um, when you <laughs> appeared at... at um, a low car uh, at a low carb USA presentation, and you were sort of transcending the academic to the popular divide. Mm -hmm. And and one of my missions is to build bridges between the disciplines so that we can communicate better with the non academic and yep. also across the producer consumer divide. And so what was it like when you first showed up at Low Carb USA? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and now you've done it several times and, and, and clearly with this wonderful book, um, you've, you've been contributing more directly to that versus the way scientists have been brought up to contribute. Yeah, yeah. So that was a very... It was a very deliberate step, uh, Peter. And I think you, I bet you feel the same way. And I bet a lot of us do in this kind of community that we share. So my, yeah, I think it was six years ago, um, maybe five years ago. It was a low carb Breckenridge where it was you and BC I first anyway, met. Before COVID. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and it was my, I guess there's nothing, this was what I was getting to, where, where those of us that think we have um, relevant uh, or, or rather answers to relevant questions, there's nothing more frustrating than not having a way to share that. And I was looking at my career and I thought, I don't want to get to the end of my, even then, even five years ago, as just a, a, an independent scientist for five years, I could already, I'd like to think that I was mature enough to look at what I was doing and think, 
is 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 the sum of my contribution to the world going to only be me wondering how many times my scientific manuscripts have been cited by other scientists? What a meaningless metric in in the grand scheme of things. And and I thought the only people who will ever know what I do is a small group of scientists, and I'll be one of the only people who ever know what they do. And it just sort of creates this bizarre little incestuous loop of knowledge, never really leaving the family. But I'm a metabolic scientist. I study obesity and diabetes, and I thought, what I know matters. Mm -hmm. Now, many people think that, and I have a hallway filled with brilliant scientists who study all kinds of interesting things. But the fact is, the average individual doesn't really care what these brilliant scientists study. They do care about obesity and diabetes. And so it was me wanting to step out of the traditional academic setting and because I had, I, I did then, and I still do. People need to know what I know when it comes to insulin resistance. It, so it was. I looked at what was out there, and I thought no one is talking about insulin resistance, and they need to. And that was the beginning. My, that very first talk at Low Carb Breckenridge, um, and and that was the very first step. Jeff Gerber and Rod Taylor allowing me to present there. I really thank them for that trust. And then the very first podcast I ever did was with Jimmy Moore, and I thank him for his trust in letting someone who was a totally unknown character onto the stage or at the microphone. And that was the beginning of it, um, but it was very deliberate. It was because I thought I had something valuable to say, and so I wanted to say it, and that was even the, the impetus for the book. Um, when you think you have answers to relevant questions, you are, I believe obligated to share those and the traditional academic channels were just insufficient for me i knew i needed to expand i needed a bigger platform for my voice and, and that was that well and i would also suggest from my perspective that the system has been broken in in some senses perverted Mm -hmm. um, so much so that i mean the, the classic for me is that we could have the uh, when I first came into this space, there was an advertisement by the American Diabetes Association that went something like, you know, since it's true that type two diabetics are at an increased risk of heart disease, or maybe they didn't specify which form, but um, and 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 which is a true statement. I mean, statistically, mm -hmm. that's true. Mm -hmm. Very um, true. And and since we know that fat causes heart disease. Which yep. we would argue is and that's not when true. And it falls apart. Yep. It must be even more important for diabetics to be on a low-fat diet. Which, again, you're learning about insulin resistance. You're studying it, and the the really good news that I think you and others who are working in this space have is that insulin resistance is sort of, uh, I, I agree with the idea of it being more of a unifying theory to chronic disease. And, and so until relatively recently, it was like, you can't eat this to lower your risk of that, and you can't eat that be to lower your risk of this, right? And, and now it seems like, oh, well, there, there may be a more consistent and unifying story behind what leads to chronic mm -hmm. illness. Yep. So I think I've heard you say that 
there is no chronic illness that isn't made it isn't at least made worse by insulin resistance. Yeah, it, well, so I don't know I, that I'd say any. I would say almost all. Okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, or, or rather non-infectious. If it's a non-infectious chronic disease, I would say it's very likely that insulin resistance is playing a, a key part in the origins of the disease or it's exacerbating the, the, the disease that might have had different origins. But yeah, yeah, Peter, to your point, and, and you're so clever at wordsmithing, so I'm going to try to steal some of it. Insulin does, insulin resistance is, is a common soil hypothesis where we can look at all of these distinct things coming up out of this rotten ground. And, and rather than look at the, the diseased little plant that we call diabetes and then see a separate plant and say, well, that's the heart disease plant. And this is the infertility plant and the Alzheimer's disease plant. Rather than continuing to trim at these little branches and the plant just always grows back, we got to go right to the soil here. Insulin represents insulin resistance to a degree represents a common soil hypothesis that if we can just acknowledge that all of these um, ragged weeds are growing that we call chronic diseases are growing from the same dirty ground, let's just fix the ground, let's fix the soil. And then we can address each one of these without having to uh, go attack them each with say specific drugs, which is how it usually is done. Mm -hmm. and, and so, in in your book, in the first part, you ask the question or answer the question, what is insulin resistance and why does it matter? So I get to speak in front of non-low-carb, non-keto audiences frequently, and I try to make them aware of this information mm -hmm. for a number of reasons, but at basic I'm a human being and I care about people. And I think this is information that hasn't been well communicated. So let's spend a little time and just say, what is insulin resistance and why does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So the, the why does it matter is maybe the, an easier place to start. So I'll okay. flip that just a bit. And that's, it matters because Insulin resistance affects up to possibly 88% of all adults in the United States. Now, I am not one of those individuals who believes the United States is a terrible place. I think it's an incredible place. So I will also quickly add, we're not the worst ones either. I've given talks on this topic throughout Southeast Asia and throughout the Middle East. And those places are as bad and in some instances, especially in the Middle East, even worse than what we have here. Even Mexico is worse than the United States when it comes to insulin resistance prevalence. So that's why it matters. It is exceedingly common, perhaps the single most common health disorder on the planet. And as we've stated and discussed already, it contributes to almost every one of these other chronic diseases that we're all afraid of. That's why it matters. Mm -hmm. Now, what it is, is really two things wrapped up into one event, or it's a coin with two sides. On one side is what we call insulin resistance. And that is some of the cells of the body are resistant to insulin's effects. Now, I said some cells, unfortunately, or rather interestingly, some cells, and indeed most, are as insulin sensitive as they ever were. They can still respond to insulin as much as they ever could. Only some of the cells are insulin resistant, but it happens to be some big ones like muscle cells. And so, so, and by mass, that's a lot of what we are, but that's also just one cell type among, you know, many, many. 
on the other side of this coin that we call insulin resistance is hyperinsulinemia or chronically elevated insulin. And of course, that's a problem in the context of all of the countless cells that are still insulin sensitive. Now this chronically elevated insulin is stimulating these other cells too much. It's making them do too much of what insulin would have been telling them to do earlier. So they're overactive. They're, so so it's, it's really these both of these sides of this coin, and they always come together. To try to tease insulin resistance itself apart from hyperinsulinemia, is, it's a fool's errand. You cannot do it in a clinical or in a human body of insulin resistance. Every genuine state of insulin resistance is both compromised insulin signaling and chronically elevated insulin. That I think is necessary because of course, within the low carb community, there's some discussion about, well, it's physiological insulin resistance or pathological. Nope, we can only invoke the term insulin resistance by my standard if we also acknowledge the chronically elevated insulin. So it's those two disorders coming together. And we also, Peter, we have to understand those two together to understand how insulin resistance contributes. Insulin resistance as the coin, both sides, contributes to chronic disease. Because on one hand, it's the insulin resistance that's, say, causing the Alzheimer's disease at the hippocampus. The hippocampus has become insulin resistant. But on the other hand, it's the chronically elevated insulin that's driving the polycystic ovary syndrome in the woman, which is the most common form of infertility. That's not a problem of the insulin resistance, but the hyperinsulinemia that always comes with insulin resistance. So to, to really appreciate how insulin resistance contributes to all of these chronic diseases, we just need to remember that insulin resistance is a confluence of two things, compromised insulin signaling and chronically elevated insulin. Okay. Um, and, and I think that you, I know I've heard you give a number of, of, of interviews and you make that point very clearly and I appreciate that. Um, because there are conditions under which we might experience one or the other, mm -hmm. and they're not what we're talking about here. That's right. Um, but, you know, so taking this to uh, normal human beings who haven't immersed themselves in this topic, um, how would they know? What would be things that they might <clears throat> see in themselves uh, let's start with personal and work outward from there. But if they go to their physicians and they get their normal physical, mm -hmm. you know, wellness check, uh, would they get information that would indicate it? Or if not, what should they be asking for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are two ways to really identify the problem, blood and body. So with regards to blood, if someone can get a blood test, that's wonderful. And I would say, beg, beg, beg your clinic, your physician or whoever to measure your fasting insulin levels. Fasting insulin is so commonly overlooked and it has such value in, in indicating who's insulin resistant and who's not. Now, it's not perfect, oddly enough. Um, it's a little more complicated to make it kind of perfect. And I can mention that. But if someone's fasting insulin is about six microunits per mil and less, that's almost a guarantee you are insulin sensitive, you're doing great. If it's higher, if it's around 10 or higher, then, you know, yellow light, you know, there's probably a problem here. And as the higher you get into the teens and beyond, almost certainly red light, you're insulin resistant. We got to make some changes. 
Um, now, if someone can also do what's called a glucose tolerance test, they go into the office of their clinic and they drink some glucose and then they can measure their insulin repeatedly, that's kind of purely an academic exercise, but you can do it clinically sometimes. The easiest way to interpret those results is to, well, you know what, I'll even go easier than that. If you take that test and at two hours, your insulin level is below 30 microunits per mil. If it's gone below 30, that's a great sign. Then you're, you're insulin sensitive. So those are some of the blood markers and there are more, but, but time being what it is, I won't get into that. And then second though, I'd mentioned body where there are some potentially obvious signs just kind of at the whole body. One, if a person is a little overweight and they have elevated blood pressure or hypertension, almost a certainty. Almost, I could almost guarantee that person has insulin resistance. It is incredibly uncommon for someone to have hypertension and it not be caused by insulin resistance. So that's one thing. If you have, if you're a little overweight and you have high blood pressure, also if your your skin, your skin can be a very good marker of insulin resistance. If you have these things called skin tags, which are these little kind of, they're not little mounds of skin. They're distinct little columns. They're little pillars of skin, teeny little bumps, typically around the armpits, sometimes around the neck. Um, it can be around anywhere where its skin can rub. So the groin or, or knees or elbows. Um, if you have these little skin tags, very, very strong sign that you have insulin resistance. And then one other skin marker is something called acanthosis nigricans. This is maybe the most um, tight correlation of all of them where uh, acanthosis nigricans is when someone will have, you know, patches of, of darkly colored skin. And the, this isn't like little freckles like I've got, um, but, but rather, you know, sections or patches of dark skin and it feels a little differently than the skin around it. So, so those two skin markers, skin tags and acanthosis nigricans are very, very strong predictors or rather indicators of insulin resistance. Mm. Okay. Um, but uh, it's my impression that most people who go for their wellness check, they end up talking about BMI, weight, mm -hmm. LDLC, total cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And yet this seems, none of that has yet come up in our conversation except to say a little overweight and hypertensive. So um, that's an interesting observation. The other is that we have a constellation of factors that are addressed as metabolic syndrome, where if you tick three of the five per the U.S. definition, then you qualify. My question is, what if you only have one or two or, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and also it's been pointed out to me that people of different ethnicity don't always respond the same way, that there are ethnic differences to how this insulin resistance manifests itself. And so you've talked about visiting and lecturing in Southeast Asia as well as the Middle East, and you're clearly working in North America. So if you could talk about how some of those differences manifest themselves, just so people get a sense of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that you brought up the metabolic syndrome. <clears throat> it is, as you noted, a constellation of health disorders that just tend to always run together. They tend to clump together. And that is um, an elevated waist circumference. So someone's fatter around the middle. 
um, elevated blood pressure, elevated glucose. And then the last two we can just collectively refer to as dyslipidemia or high triglycerides or low HDL and low HDL, which I think we can just say dyslipidemia or blood lipids aren't optimal. Um, those are the metabolic syndrome. Now, I don't love that term, and I'm sure you, you've heard me state this before. I wish we would have gone, I wish we would have never changed it from one of its earlier terms, which was the, the insulin resistance syndrome. Because metabolic syndrome, it sure sounds sexier. I know there's nothing sexy about insulin resistance. Metabolic just has such a ring to it. Everyone loves that word. But, but calling this constellation of disorders that always tend to clump together the metabolic syndrome, it sounds nice, but it's also very vague. It doesn't give anyone, uh, it doesn't leave them with the imp an impression of, of what we're actually talking about. If we go back to one of its earlier names, which is the insulin resistance syndrome, well, now we're cooking with gas because that actually touches on the origins of these problems. And it is a common soil across all of them. They're all in some way related to insulin resistance. So I think, I wish we could have gone, I wish we never would have changed it and gone back to that term. Now, you're right to point out ethnic differences. In fact, I was, I was going to add one of the blood markers of insulin resistance is something called the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So you take your triglycerides and you divide it by HDL. That's a very good indicator of insulin sensitivity. And the cutoff is 1.5. If someone has a triglyceride to HDL ratio that's higher, that's a very strong sign that they're insulin resistant. If it's lower than 1.5, then that's a good sign that they're insulin sensitive. But that falls apart across different ethnicities. That triglyceride to HDL ratio at 1.5 was really kind of optimized with the typical kind of Northern European Caucasian group. So, you know, guys like me and you. So a Caucasian ethnicity will fit into that cutoff um, generally pretty well but an African ethnicity won't. It tends to sort of push up a little higher. And so there isn't, but that's not as well defined. And I'm sure it will be in time. Um, uh, but but that's, that's something to consider um, with regards to ethnic differences. And then one other comment that I'll make um, is that I did my postdoctoral work in Singapore, this beautiful country in Southeast Asia that is, is one of my families and my favorite places. Um, one of our daughters was born there. I spent my sabbatical there three years ago, and we just love it there. But they had, uh, and still do, uh, an expressed interest in metabolic disorders because the primary ethnicity in Singapore is Chinese ethnicity. Now, they're all Singaporean, but Singapore as a, na as a nation represents a, a really interesting study where you have these distinct ethnicities, China, um, a Chinese ethnicity, which is predominant, Indian, Asian Indian, Malaysian, which is sort of the native um, indigenous people in, in that corner, that, that kind of Malaysian peninsula, Singapore included. And then you have a bunch of Caucasian Europeans there. Well, I mean, relatively fewer than all the rest. But nevertheless, what they found was that there's the spectrum of, of propensity towards prediabetes, which is insulin resistance, or outright type 2 diabetes, where you start to gain a little weight across these ethnicities. And I like to joke because of some of these kinds of findings that if you want to be fat, you want to be Caucasian because Caucasians can get fatter than other ethnicities and actually be relatively healthier. Now, th there are some, there are some um, uh, interesting 
speculations onto the evolution of the distinct ethnicities in different parts of the world with why this might be. But I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on that, so I won't get into it. But Caucasians could tend to be the fattest of these four ethnicities, and I could even add some, and, and be the healthiest. And then on the, one, on the other end, you have, say, a Chinese, if we had a Caucasian man and a Chinese man, and they're both gaining a little bit of weight, the Chinese ethnicity, this Chinese man, as an example, he starts to only gain a modest amount of fat and then starts to become very pre-diabetic, hypertensive, hyper, you know, dyslipidemia, fatty liver disease. So this, this Chinese body doesn't handle fat storage as well as, say, the Caucasian body. And then an African body is going to be a little more towards the Caucasian side. And then you have, say, Hispanic, um, you know, South American, Central American more towards that Chinese side. So there's a spectrum here where some ethnicities can store fat in a healthier way. Some ethnicities, um, it, it becomes much more pathogenic much sooner. Um, and again, there's interesting speculation um, that, uh, that is a little off topic, but it doesn't change the reality that, that we can't create. It's like, for example, BMI that you'd mentioned earlier, the distinction is so obvious in, in, in Asian ethnicities, um, this would be Chinese and beyond throughout all of Asia, they, they had to re, reinvent their own BMI scale because you could have, say, a Caucasian, a Northern European Caucasian, whose BMI was 23, and that's considered normal because they're healthy. There's nothing wrong. But you put a Chinese guy at a BMI of 23, and he is diabetic, hypertensive, and everything else. And so they had to actually recalibrate the BMI scale um, for different ethnicities because of these disparities. One, one other thing to just touch briefly, because typically people think of diabetes, they think fasting glucose. Um, maybe they've been introduced to hemoglobin A1C, HbA1c. Um, and yet you and others have spoken about how that's perhaps a lagging indicator of oh, yeah. disrupted metabolic system. So um, that, and, and unfortunately, those numbers have been used to argue against additional tests. So that someone who doesn't have an elevated fasting glucose wouldn't get additional tests because they weren't indicated when in fact yep. some information might be found to interrupt the disease process a decade or more earlier. Uh, any comments yep. on that? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm delighted you brought that up. Unfortunately, so much of our view of insulin is through the lens of glucose. People, and this is, this is very well-educated physicians included in this. I've had these conversations where it's almost like we're talking in circles where, where they will say, I will say, well, you need to measure the patient's insulin. And then the physician will reply, and this actually happened. Well, I, I don't need to because I measured their glucose. Then I would say, no, 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 no. Insulin's not the same as glucose. Insulin can change where glucose doesn't. No, no, I don't need to measure their insulin because I know their glucose. It's just, and, and, and again, well, not again, to defend that dogmatic view, we only know what we've been taught. Mm -hmm. And one of the beauties of being a scientist, and I know you can relate to this, a scientist gets paid to ask questions. A physician, um, and this is uh, truly, this is not meant to be insulting. And, and so I, I, I am almost reluctant saying it, I'm reluctant saying it, but a physician gets paid to see patients. 
A physician doesn't get paid to just sit back in an office on any given day and just ask themselves, well, maybe insulin's a better marker of disease progression than, than, than glucose is when it comes to diabetes. No, so it's not fair of me, of me or anyone else to expect someone to know something they've not been taught. But as scientists, we do have the beauty of getting paid, albeit not as well as a physician, but to just be <laughs> curious. Yeah. So when, when you can take the time to think through these, and mind you, of course, there are many, many physicians that view this the same way as I do. But here we have two markers. We have glucose, which is the stereotypical marker that is measured at every single blood test anyone will ever get. And then we have insulin, which is totally overlooked because people think insulin's only value is to indicate what glucose is. To a degree, that's right. Insulin does regulate glucose levels, but that, that glucose-centric paradigm fails to acknowledge the absolute reality that insulin, as the body's becoming more and more insulin resistant, insulin has been climbing for potentially decades. And then it's only once the body becomes so resistant to insulin that even though insulin is still multiples higher than it used to be, now the body can't keep the glucose in check. And so the glucose finally starts to rise. And then we detect it based on conventional medicine thinking, medical thinking. But the tragedy, as you noted, if we could shift the paradigm away from a glucose-centric view to an insulin-centric view, we could have detected the changes in insulin potentially 10 years or more before the glucose ever changed. And that represents 10 years of reversing the problem rather than in a way getting to a point where it's much harder to reverse it, but still possible, but much harder. Imagine all the damage that's been happening in those 10 or 20 years when we could have intervened um, at its at its earliest changes, at the earliest stages. Mm -hmm. And the point needs to be made again, insulin is absolutely essential. Yep. Insulin is completely normal, uh, natural. Um, yep. Too much insulin is a problem. Um, that the chronically elevated levels of insulin are themselves a problem. And unfortunately, we have a mindset that says, well, you know, I sit in my meetings and I, these aren't, you know, metabolic health or diet. These are forage. And some of my colleagues are looking at the bag and looking mm -hmm. at the carbohydrate content mm -hmm. and saying, well, I better turn up my pump. And then they eat the bag and it's like, yep. um, no, why don't we explore option B, which is not to eat that and here have a meat stick, which I always carry with me. Um, so this, this issue of, of better, well, you, you made the point earlier that, that it was changed from, um, um, insulin resistance syndrome. I think before then it was syndrome X or something. Yep. It was, yep. um, and, and part of this was, this was an idea that was emerging that was contra to the idea that fat causes heart disease. And this other, these observations were coming out by people who were working within a system that was increasingly under the sway of this, one dogma that it was the the fat in the diet and causing heart disease and so they were struggling to get this out into this realm 
and reading other books like Gary Taubes, who I know that you mm -hmm. credit with having a big influence on you, as I do with myself, um, that they would give these presentations and people were like, what do we do with this? We, we, mm -hmm. we don't know what to do with this information because if, if you are right, then all this is wrong, which they didn't say directly, but then somebody said, well, we have to eat something. You're, you're saying it's the carbohydrates. These other people have been saying it's the fat. We've got to eat something. And this is the dilemma that many people now find themselves in is that they've been told what to eat for so long. And now this information comes along. Yes. Um, but as, as Gary said to me very recently, you don't have to take anybody's word for it. You can try this yourself. Yes, and, yes. And get your own results. Yep. In fact, I, I, I totally agree. If we're talking about insulin resistance, I am, uh, to me, it's beyond debate. A low carbohydrate diet is the way to solve the problem. If now, now people will want to think, well, Ben, then like what I'm not saying is it can only be a low carbohydrate diet um, for, for weight loss. I still, in fact, think the sum of all clinical data suggests low-carbohydrate diets are best for weight loss. But I also want to acknowledge that I'm not saying – I'm never saying calorie number doesn't matter. But I'm saying if you want to understand the fat cells, you have to appreciate what insulin is doing because insulin has a chokehold on every single fat cell in the body. <clears throat> now, one comment – where you're, you're mentioning the kind of evolution of the insulin resistance syndrome. It used to be called Syndrome X. This, these were contributions made by a scientist named Gerald Reven. What's so wonderful about Gerald Reven's career, he was one of the um, earlier, and by that I mean 1980s, guys challenging the dogmatic view, the growing dogmatic view that this is all a problem of too much fat. He published a study in the 80s where he took people with, with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, which is just insulin resistance, and he had them adopt to the letter a diet that corresponded with that proscribed by the American Diabetes Association, which was low fat and higher in carbohydrates. And he noted that the disease got worse. So this diet that was being encouraged by the American Diabetes Association basically now, Peter, this is a cynical conclusion, but it is the only one I, I can make. I think it is a diet to ensure that they could sell more insulin to type 2 diabetics. It is a wonderful way. I'll rephrase this. Putting a type 2 diabetic on a high-carbohydrate diet is a wonderful way to sell more insulin and anti-diabetic medications because that's all you're going to have to do. And that is why... People say type 2 diabetes is irreversible <clears throat> because if you follow that conventional advice to eat a high-carbohydrate diet, low-fat, you will be put on medications, and the medications, of course, will never solve the problem. They'll only be pruning at the branches coming up from these, this dirty soil. You've got to heal the soil, this common soil hypothesis that I touched on earlier. You've got to improve the insulin resistance to actually cure the problem, but when you do you cure the problem. Even full-blown type 2 diabetes is totally reversible uh, and, and it, because it's a, it's a matter of diet. It is the diet that has caused the problem. It is also a diet that can cure the problem. You cannot reverse type 2 diabetes through medications. That's why they say it's irreversible because if you listen to them, it is. Yeah, and, and 
I've actually spoken with um, someone recently who talks about who who taught taught me about double diabetes. Mm -hmm. So you begin with type two, but you're going to treat it with insulin, and or or and sorry, type yep. one, and you treat yep. it with. Uh, exogenous insulin, but it's at higher and higher levels. And then you end up with insulin resistance. Yep. And, and that, that process is showing up in adolescence now. Oh yeah. 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 That, so I teach this idea to my students. So I'm thrilled that someone else is talking about it. You've heard about it. Yeah. This is, that is just, you to can me, tell this, them a forage agronomist heard about it. So they need yeah, to know well, that. Well, in fact, what I'll say is Students, you've got to know because even a forage agronomist knows about this. So you've got to know about it. It's it. Yes. Yeah, so it, it is to me such a such a clear um, uh, accusation or implication against carbs because you we tell the type one diabetic, and it's it's terrible advice. We tell them you can eat whatever you want, have that cake, have those cookies, have that ice cream, the lollipops, just cover it with your insulin. And that's yes. what you were mentioning earlier. The guy starts to eat this junk and he just says, Oh, I got to just snap in a few more units of insulin. And then they start to get, if you see a type one diabetic who's overweight, I could say it's almost a guarantee. They have double diabetes. They've, they've been putting in so much insulin that now they're starting to become insulin resistant. And now they're, so they're kind of bleeding into this range of type two diabetes. If you, a type one diabetic who's get, who's overweight or obese, they basically, I would be very, very confident mm. they have double diabetes. Mm. Okay. Um, we've, we've already run through a lot of time and, and covered a lot of ground. But so if somebody has been told by their doctor that they have insulin resistance or they're type 2 diabetic or it, it's in their family mm -hmm. um, or they you know, have noticed over the years the, the, the abdominal obesity or the elevated blood pressure or the dyslipidemia or the rising um, glucose. And again, we're not physicians. We're not prescribing, yeah. um, not that kind of doctor. And I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I don't know about you. But, yeah, that's, that's um, a funny commercial. It's good for you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... We're happy to put people in touch with information and would reference people to go to the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners and, and find their information. And I'll put links in the show notes. Um, what are some things that people could do? Just ordinary sort of, oh, well, you mentioned the word lifestyle and that word mm -hmm. gets used a lot, but we need yeah. to kind of give some useful information. Yep. Yep. So when it comes to insulin resistance and, and type two diabetes, and to a degree, all of the other problems that come from it, all the little ragged weeds growing from this dirty ground, um, food is the culprit or the cure. And to make it on the cure side, I believe there are four really pivotal pillars. First, control carbohydrates. I'm not saying not to eat any, um, although that can happen. There's no biological need for carbohydrates in humans, of course, but control carbohydrates. Focus on the least starchy and least sugary of the foods. And in general, at its simplest, I'd like to just say focus on fruits and vegetables and you're generally going to be okay, but eat them, don't drink them. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a little more nuance there with regards to fruits and vegetables. So I hate to kind of give it all a green light, but just for the sake of time, if someone focuses on fruits and vegetables, that's a wonderful first step, if, if not maybe the single step they have to make at all. Control carbohydrates. Number two, prioritize protein. We don't get enough protein. Protein kind of does a little bit of metabolic magic. It increases metabolic rate. We need it. And we're not getting enough of it, the average individual, for proper muscle and bone maintenance or growth. And then following that is because I, I do like to put them together because in nature, they literally come together. And that is don't fear fat. We have, as you noted earlier, we have been almost bred to fear fat. This has been a cultural um, villain, a pariah um, for for decades, for 50 years, we've been told how bad fat is and still to this day. Fat isn't the enemy if it's from natural sources. And by that, I mean animal fat and fruit fat, the fatty fruits or coconuts, avocados, olives. Unfortunately, most of the fat the average American eats is from soybean oil and from shortening. And those are bastardized, industrialized oils that have no place in our diet and, and that has changed. So, so that, that is a fat that is a villain and we ought to be careful with it. But natural fats that we've been eating since time immemorial, animal fats and fruit fats, enjoy them, don't fear them. And I would like to again emphasize, eat them with protein. Fat and protein are meant to come together. In nature, the best proteins, dairy, egg, and, and meat come with fat. And, and where people focus on meat, that has no fat in it. I think it's interesting that I don't think our ancestors ate chicken breast, for example. You know, we didn't eat, uh, I don't believe, now this is not my forte. You look at the consumption patterns of chicken in the United States and it went from almost nothing, I think, Peter, you'd know better than me, to I think being the number one consumed meat. And that's an interesting trend. Um, And I think there's something wrong with it. Fat helps the body not only digest protein better, because bile acids actually help with protein digestion. But second, and this may be derivative of the first, protein and fat are more anabolic at muscle than protein alone. Mm-hmm. So those two should come together, prioritize protein and don't fear fat. And then lastly, my fourth one is basically don't feel the need to eat all the time. And so intermittent fasting can be a wonderful tool because if you're not eating, your insulin is down. And then the longer your insulin is down, the more insulin sensitive you've become and the easier it's going to be to lose weight, the further off you're going to kick away the type 2 diabetes and all those other um, disorders that come from insulin resistance. So those are the four. Control carbs, prioritize protein, don't fear fat, and fast. And what, what, what is your definition for the best exercise? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's a slow pitch, isn't it, Peter? The one you'll do. <laughs> The one you'll do. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really born out of just practicality where, where Peter, I could say to you, Peter, minute for minute, uh, the best exercise is cross-country skiing. And you would say, ah, oh, well, forget you. I'm not going to go cross-country skiing, well, you know? And, and, and so then, you, then the person would be tempted to say, oh, I'm just not going to do anything. If I can't do that, I'm just not going to do anything. But if you can, if a person can just get up and move, that's the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I like that approach as someone who's never found a gym very appealing um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, So finding what fits. um, That's it. 
is is important and it it can be and activity also you, you know you think about people that are working outside doing oh, various yes. things that that counts as exercise it, oh for idea. sure peter i imagine yeah i imagine the people that you get to speak with uh, who's who i just envy there's a part of me that thinks peter i just got to make some money and buy a little <laughs> ranch somewhere here um but real estate in utah is getting so crazy um yeah I can't afford it at all, but, oh, I just love, yeah. So if someone's out in the field, they're working, they're feeding the cows, they're out, you know, whatever else they may be doing, they may be doing that counts. Yeah. So, so a couple things just uh, kind of bringing it to a close. One is, and I warned you that I have a little quibble with the phrase plagues of prosperity. And I understand the alliteration. Yes, I, I, which I am a sucker for. Yeah. The, the, the problem that I have is this is global. And we've known as long as we've cared to pay attention that these conditions actually are a bigger burden on poorer populations than mm -hmm. they are. And, and part of that prosperity story was a narrative. And, and you know, I, I, I think there's far more people in this world that would like to be challenged with prosperity. Yeah. <laughs> than there are in the West that are feeling guilty about it. So part of our mission ought to be how can we help our brothers and sisters in low and middle income countries? And right now, the unsustainable crisis that's falling on them as a tsunami is this one that we've just been talking about. Um, so in 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 wrap that back into we have conversations about global food systems mm -hmm. and a big part of those conversations are informed by the belief of what constitutes a healthy diet and then they're trying to say well we need to promote this globally in the name of environmental or development mm -hmm. or whatever when we have, I would say, stronger evidence on the other side that says what we need to be doing is improving the productivity and efficiency of livestock agriculture globally um, because humanity needs those products in its diet. If we don't have that, then we don't have economies that are strong enough to worry about things like stewardship and environmental issues mm -hmm. and um, so, so I think this is integral to this moving towards 2050 goals and beyond. And yet we don't yet have metabolic health adequately a part of the sustainable yep. development goals. Oh, so Peter, I, I agree 100%. Um, and this isn't, I would say this to anyone. It's just easier to say to you and your audience, I believe beef is the single healthiest food a human can eat. Um, I, I know people love to talk about all these sexy superfoods, and this plant is a superfood, and this fruit is a superfood. Nope, it's beef. I'm utterly convinced of that. Now, that is utterly. not my area of research. Yeah, exactly. That's not necessarily – that is not my, my focus as a scientist, but it, it just seems so obvious um, that I have to state it. I, yeah. I I think that there is something tremendously self-serving and signaling uh, uh, when you have these affluent societies that tell these developing countries you can't use fossil fuels that we used to become world powers. Now I know that's a little off topic. 
And then second, you can't use traditional ranching practices that we used in our history of develop, becoming superpowers and still do. Um, you need to eat these fake foods that we're going to make for you. Um, and, and all this processed food that, that these even developing countries, poorer countries have ready access to, you go through a little place like um, Cambodia and it's, it's, or, or Vietnam, it's shocking how much just junk food is there. In fact, especially in the Middle East, it is shocking how much junk food is, is available. And I think it is wrong. And, and I echo your sentiments um, with, with less information than you do. I think the best thing we can do for every country, developed or developing, is to encourage them to, to develop and put in place sustainable um, agricultural practices, farming and ranching, because that to me is the basis of a healthy diet. Well, and, and in fairness, and to anyone from Southwest Asia, um, it doesn't have to be beef. Um, yeah, it right. can be lamb, it can be goat, it can be eggs, it can be fish, it, you know. It, yeah, so I would say ruminant. Yeah, good. It, thank you. Yeah. Well, and even more, as, as Dr. Ballersted says, be sure to take your daily meds. That's meat, eggs, dairy, seafood. Right? Nice. Yes. <laughs> um, so, and it, it is important for us to get a better picture of the burden of metabolic disease non-infectious chronic disease mm -hmm. on societies across the face of the earth because they have an environmental impact. They have an economic impact. They have a societal impact. Um, and and we, we're seeing how that ripples out in all these different ways. So um, part, it, I, I don't know if you've looked at that burden at all. Um, yeah. Um, so clearly, it's it's one thing to point out the problem. It's another to say, and here's a solution, which thank you for all that you're doing to, to provide that information to people so that they can, with whatever is accessible to them, affordable to them, appropriate to them, form a diet and a pattern of eating. You know, part of the problem is, do we sit down and have a meal together? And one of the things that I um, respect about what you've been doing is you have a different priority than going out and, you know, giving talks or getting involved. I mean, it's you are a husband and a father, and, yep. and that's that's the most important thing. And then, then you get to do these other things, which is also really important. But um, it, it, I, I wonder as we've shifted from sitting down and eating together to, you know, grabbing something and driving down yeah. the highway while you eat it, um, that that's part of this derangement as well. Um, oh, so I, I totally agree. I think there's, it's something unfortunate, not only societal, um, and, and familial, but also health wise where food has just become something convenient or indulgent and, and no longer social, uh, where for me, it is absolute priority. I want to have breakfast with my family and dinner with my family. And my rule, um, while adhering to a generally low-carb diet, I mm -hmm. eat dinner with the family. So if my family dinner involves more carbohydrates, if there's an easy way for me to keep it low-carb personally, 
but not imposing that on my kids, especially I want them to eat and indulge and, and love food. Um, but if I can keep it low carb conveniently for me, I will. If I can't, I'm just going to eat whatever my family's eating because that's not what dinner is to me. Dinner is I'm visiting with my wife and my children and, and may that always be my priority and may it pay off. Uh, I do it because I love my children and I want to be with my family, but I'm also hoping that I can instill in them, well, this sort of traditional view of things and that family is what matters more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I I um glad you brought up the how to be um a, 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 how you follow it in your family right. is is a critical part. Um so Ben, thank you very much for your time. I and thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um before we close, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing and the information that you've just touched on briefly, besides being sure to buy this book? As one author told me, you don't have to read it, just buy it. But <laughs> no, 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 you, you do need to read it because it works better when you read it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so the book, yeah, go buy my book, Help, help Out a Poor Professor. Um, no, but it, it really, it represents... Um, really kind of the thesis, my thesis, if I wanted to be known professionally for anything, that's that book. Um, frankly, it was able, it was my opportunity to kind of get it all out there. Um, I, I'm generally, I'm in, kind of involved in social media and it's strictly a tool to share insight into human metabolism. It's never me doing anything personally. It's not me with my family. It's not me eating food even. It's just little snippets of, of insight into human metabolism. I'm mostly active on Instagram these days. Um, and that's Ben Bickman, PhD. It's the same handle at Twitter, but Peter, you'd probably know as well as I do, Twitter is just becoming so hostile and ugly that I've just sort of retreated from Twitter a bit and find Instagram a little more uh, enjoyable. Um, so those are the social media outlets for me. I, I contribute um, blog and video content uh, at a website called Get Health. It's hlth.com. And there's also actually a low-carb, high-fat, high-protein meal replacement shake I developed with a couple of my brothers that people can learn more about. But I'm a, uh, not to take away from beef or ruminant um, uh, at all. And also we provide I, – I also have helped create a coaching platform a dietary coaching platform that people can learn about at insuliniq.com. And that's all, of course, in addition to me being an academic. But as we talked about earlier, when you think you have answers to relevant questions, you can't help but want to create solutions to relevant problems. So that's that's why I kind of mingle in those um, non-academic waters. Well, perfect. Um, before I let you go, if you have any questions for me, it's only fair to open myself up to... Well. Uh, Peter, no question, just a, a sincere, heartfelt comment. I hope we're able to meet up again someday soon. How I, I miss the days of these low-carb conferences where where we um, misfits uh, could get together and, and chew the fat on all these fun topics. Oh, nice. I see what you did there. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> that, was the, uh, that was on purpose. Yes, yes. Well played, doctor. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and... Uh, wish you continued success and um, good health, and, and may that day come soon. Yes, well said, well said. Yep, I agree, brother. Thank you. <laughs>